The following podcast is an Embassy Row production. Welcome, everybody. This is Shaken and Stirred. I'm Nigel Barker in Woodstock in New York, and I'm with my greatest of friends, Tom Astor in Oxford, England. Hi, Tom. How are you, mate? Hey, Nigel. Good, thanks. I am, uh, you know, no change, really. We've been doing this for a while now virtually and um, it feels like you know I'm desperate to jump on a plane and come and see you guys that does seem still like it's a few months away yeah you gotta you have to must keep your weird strains of COVID to yourself over in the UK well now, not- hang on hang on a minute the latest one is Brazilian that's got nothing to do with us I mean that's you know one's South African and one's Brazilian I mean talk me through that that's where it's coming from no, that doesn't even make sense to be honest with you but anyway I guess it can mutate anywhere yeah, I mean, it's just, it's boring. And anyway, England, I can tell you, when you ask me how I am, when I speak to you guys over in America, and I hear that, you know, big people are shopping and going out and all that. I mean, in England at the moment, we're back in a second lockdown, we're super strict, and we're being told that early spring, we might be allowed out of our lockdown, which is, and the lockdown in here means that literally, you're allowed to go to the shops to get food, and that's it. And if your car is in Oxford, police will stop you and say, why are you 20 miles away from your house and slap a fine on you? I mean, it's getting becoming militant and crazy. But anyway. No, the opposite of here. That's complete yeah. opposite. People are driving everywhere, doing what they want. Even in places like New York State, they, there's, you know, there's no curfew. There's no like restriction on, on where you can go and what you can do. But that's probably the reason why, you know, alcohol itself is, you know, certainly in the UK, I know that sales are, are, are skyrocketing because people are sort of locked well, in at home. Hang on. I, rock, I was reading about this earlier. Sales are skyrocketing. Wait a second, is this booze news? Yeah, because sales have rocketed in the off sales, as it were. So on sales, so booze, obviously alcohol served in restaurants, pubs, and all that kind of stuff has come to a grinding halt. There's been an exponential increase in off sales, people going home and drinking. There's been a massive increase in small sort of little boutique distilleries and little, you know, people making little specialist liqueurs and, and, and spirits. That is not enough, I'm afraid, to keep the drinks industry as a whole. And the Drinks Federation think that it's going to take at least four years for the drinks companies and drink it, you know, the alcohol industry to get back to where it was pre-pandemic. That's four years it's going to take. So it's not good everyone no it's not good for everyone and there's no doubt that there's certainly when i and actually in, in the us it's almost slightly the opposite i mean what we're finding is the sort of microbreweries and what have you the ones who have suffered the most right because mm. they are the ones who didn't really have the distribution and were only selling in in establishments like bars and restaurants and what have you because that was the only way they could get it to people so you know they've really suffered and, and gone to the the, the, the the sort of sidelines but that being said the alcohol business as a whole is on an all-time high, a bit like the stock market. I mean, it's it's just, you know, one of the few things people can actually enjoy at their home and feel like they're entertaining on some level. But at the same time, there's been something like overall, I mean, in England, in, in, in the UK, certainly, there's been something like a 60% drop in overall sales. So, yes, it's gone up. You know, there's been a sort of 50 or 60% increase of drinking at home. But you just, people just don't drink as much at home as they do when they go out to a restaurant, at a pub, lunch, whatever it is. But I guess you're the exception of the rule then, Tom. I'm trying to keep the, the alcohol industry here going. And the other thing is, the other, I'd like to, as you put it, one of your favorite words, which is a word I don't, I, I, I'm not sure I like that much, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to segue 
the next bit of sort of information and to uh, segue it into the chat. Because on top of this disastrous, uh, you know, actually you're saying the alcohol industry is being buoyed by COVID. I'm saying the opposite. Small distilleries, of which we will be having conversation with somebody later about, about such thing, have doubly suffered in the last year with the COVID thing because the outgoing president of the United States got so cross with the European Union that he slapped 20% tariffs on spirits being exported or imported into the States. So our little small, our little small distilleries over here, suddenly it just financially isn't viable and they've lost a big chunk of their market, especially, and this is my segue now, you'll like this, especially, I'm holding a bottle up, so if you're listening to this podcast, you won't see it, but especially distilleries like this, the Dingle Distillery, distilling whiskey in Ireland, massive market in America. Suddenly they've got to stop 20% on the prices. Export markets come to a grinding halt. So I'm trying my hardest to try and just... So wait a second, you're drinking a whiskey called Dingle. And what is Dingle made from? It's a single malt whiskey. It's not a rye whiskey. It's, and it's made in Dingle in County Kerry, in Ireland, Nigel, that's in Ireland. It's a... From the famous Dingleberries. But the, it's a famous dingleberry whiskey. It's absolutely delicious. They don't make very much of it. And the reason I have this is because my general manager here, Dan, who every year without fail goes to Dingle, which is a little town there, goes to the same bar, same holidays, been doing it for 20 years, and goes to the distillery and buys whiskey. And he occasionally brings me back a bottle if I'm lucky, if I've been treating him well. Well, I am drinking a, a, a glass of barrel-proof, single-barrel Colorado whiskey from Distillery 291. And I'm giving away what we're talking about. Super excited for our guest today. He is an old friend, a fashion photographer who's shot for the biggest magazines, but decided to trade it all in for whiskey. Or rather, to make his own award-winning whiskey the Colorado way, please welcome founder of Distillery 291, Michael Myers. Michael, how are you, mate? I'm good, Nigel. How are you? Is it 291 or 291, 291, however you want to say it? However, we're very, very well. Make cheers, first of all. I'm drinking a glass of yours right now. I got to pour mine. I'm going to pour yours. I love that. Look at it. Glug, 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 glug. What are you drinking? Which one are you drinking? Uh, I picked up the rye. Uh, okay, so t tell us, which is your best one? I've got six different bottles of yours here. Everything from the rye to the bourbon to the, the white dog. And uh, the, the, I mean, they're all different colors. They're all different names. Fabulous bottle, by the way. But what, what is your best one? Cheers first. Cheers first. <laughs> yeah, Tim, cheers. So I set out to make my Colorado whiskey, which is the rye. So 291 Colorado whiskey that you have single barrel, barrel proof is the whiskey I really set out to make. In the lower proof in the bottle, it's 101.7 and it says rye on it. It's a spicier whiskey. It's a big, bold, beautiful whiskey um, like the state of Colorado. And I loved rye. Um, when I started this, Thomas Handy, which is an amazing rye, was my favorite. Expensive, but my favorite. And so I kind of modeled my whiskey after that. So take us back, Michael. I've known you for several <laughs> years, many, many years, in fact. And, and, you know, I knew you as a fashion photographer and, you know, you were shooting for some of the biggest magazines, as I mentioned. You were photographing the Olsen twins and all kinds of cool stuff and, and what have you. And at what point were you like, I'm going to change this fast track life in New York City and I'm going to move to Colorado. I'm going to grow my hair really, really long. I'm going to look like someone from like a <laughs> 1950s and, um, and I'm going to make whiskey. You know, what, 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 what was that about? 
Was it a dream? You know, my dream, my real dream was being a photographer. And um, I'm lucky enough to be someone that had two dreams and lived both of them um, for a job. I mean, you don't, I can't call them jobs. <laughs> you know that as being a photographer as well. But um, yeah, so 9-11, uh, lived three blocks from World Trade Center, couldn't get back in my apartment that day. Um, we moved to Colorado because my wife, my ex-wife's parents lived here. And we, I commuted for some time and then got to a point where I was like, okay, it's either keep my career as a photographer or, or get, and give up my family or keep my family. And of course, keep my family. So I stayed in Colorado and was looking for something to do different when I was commuting. And uh, I was on a flight back from Vanity, a Vanity Fair shoot and read an article about the guy, um, Stephen Goss, who created Sailor Jerry and Hendrix Gin and thought I could brand or market a whiskey. And so I went to a friend here, Mike Bristol, who makes Bristol beer, and asked him what he thought. And he's like, get your license and I'll try and help. I can brew beer, but I know nothing about distillation. And I kind of said, okay, I'll figure that out. And, um, you know, with a lot more between there, here I am. And actually, I'm in my space um, right now. We are moving this week. We've been moving all week. We have some fermentation tanks left. and my original still and this all that's getting still of yours michael has quite a story doesn't it because it's isn't it made from the, the the copper plates that you you know used to use for photography it is uh it's made from photogravure plates and that is that still right there it's a 45 gallon still but um yeah we were in this 7500 square foot space and we're moving to 12,000 square feet with room for another 12,000 feet to grow so but yeah, to back up to the photogravure plate. So that still is built out of flat copper plates that you chemically etch an image in. You ink the plate, you put a piece of paper with it, and you get an inked photograph. So it's a very thin copper plate that I took, cut out, took it to this company, and one of the guys and me put the metal through a roller and rolled the metal for it to curve. And then this guy, Al Novak, welded it, TIG welded it together for me. And that's, that was my first still. And I was in 300 square feet at that time, could make 60 gallons a month. Kind of crazy. In that small space, I won two liquid golds from Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible. So uh, crazy. Just that story alone is, yeah, is a pretty crazy story. I mean, there's a couple of crazy parts to it. First of all, <laughs> okay, I want to make whiskey. That's, that. I get it. Yeah. But just become, okay, I'm going to go make whiskey and I'm going to go make award-winning whiskey in my own still that I'm going to make out of photographic plates. I mean, it's, wait a second. Have you ever made whiskey before? Do you come from a long line of whiskey makers? I mean, what, where does, I, I, anyone can say, I want to make wine. I, I, I find it hard enough making a loaf of bread, for God's sakes, and half the world is trying to do it. It's hard <laughs> How do you make award-winning yeah, uh, whiskey out of your own still? Yeah, I had never brewed beer or made whiskey you've got to make beer to make whiskey, but I'd never, you know, I, I didn't know a lot about it actually. Um, I grew up in Georgia, you know, and, and we had, we raised Tennessee walking horses and we had a farm in Tennessee that was about seven miles from Jack Daniels, seven miles to George Dickel right in the middle there. And so I was around it, but I mean, I never even toured Jack Daniels or Dickel when I started this, but like I said, I'm from Georgia. They make it in the woods how hard can it be, right? That was the thought. 
and you know, being a photographer, being in the dark room, all that kind of stuff, chemical reaction, time process are very similar to making whiskey in a weird way. To me, it's very similar to being in the dark room. And it's, you know, when you're making a bourbon, uh, it's, it's at least 51% corn. So my bourbon's 81 or 80% corn. And that's cooking grits. I mean, it's literally, you know, like cooking a, a pot of grits on the stove. It's the same thing. And so all that came together, I, you know, but a lot of luck. I mean, to, to go from zero to winning liquid gold and Jim Murray's uh, with Jim Murray in a year or less than a year was crazy. Can I ask so. you, you said, you know, when you started out, how hard can it be? Right. But you, and then you, you're winning medals within a year. So how hard has it been? So making the whiskey was not, you know, it was a lot of, it was a lot of labor, but it wasn't that hard. You know, I, different people find different work harder than others, but it, you know, it was a lot of picking up buckets, just bucketing five gallons of mash into one thing and then bucking it back into another and 55 or 50 gallons at a time. The hard part is growing, getting bigger. It's cash intensive. You know, you're putting whiskey in a barrel and it sits there for years. All right. You know, for us, a little, a little less than the normal, but because we use smaller barrels, but um, years. And so you're sitting on cash. I mean, right now, I think I'm sitting on $4 million worth of whiskey in barrels, and that's at cost. That's not at retail. And so that's the hard part. That was the hard part. But meeting people, you know, I always say if, if my first batches were bad, it would have been a tough road, you know, trying to figure out what was wrong, how to make them taste better, all like that. I got really lucky and literally the first batch that came off the still was amazing. And that was the white dog, you know, unaged. So from there, it was just, how do I bottle it? Where do I get cash to bottle it? Yes, that is amazing with white dog and tonic. I'm showing it, uh, Tom the bottle of white dog because everyone there, of course, can't see what I'm doing, but it is clear. I mean, it is a clear whiskey. It looks like a vodka or something, right? So, so white dog, yeah. can I ask, is white dog, so it's clear, is that because it hasn't been in the barrels and, and attained its color? Is that because it's, is that an unaged? What's the difference? What is, so I'd hasten to say the opposite, it can't be black dog because that's the sort of depression that would. <laughs> The opposite of white dog is aged, barrel-aged whiskey. Is that right? That is correct. That white dog is a rye whiskey. So to call it a rye whiskey in, a, in America, it does have to go on oak for a moment. So it literally goes into a used barrel and then that doesn't collect any color. But like corn whiskey, 80% corn or more can be put in a bottle without ever touching wood. Um, that's called corn whiskey, but it's unaged. For me, I never wanted to make vodka or gin. I wanted to make whiskey only, but I felt there was an American white spirit to take the place of vodka, rum, or tequila, and that would be white dog or white whiskey. And so my first one was fresh. I believe you have a bottle of that too. And that's the corn recipe or the bourbon recipe, 80% corn, 19% malt rye, 1% malt barley. And that makes amazing whiskeritas or Gimlets. You know, Prohibition kind of pushed white whiskey away because they, the revenuers were saying, you know, you, 
if you make it at home, you'll go blind and all like that because they wanted to collect tax dollars. And so white whiskey got pushed out and it's come back some, but it's still not a lot of people make it and bottle it. But we sell a ton of it in Colorado. We are just moving the white whiskey out into other states um, just this past year and this year. And it makes really great cocktails. I mean, people are always shocked. Is the darker stuff, is the aged whiskey, I was always told this, which, which I think is a myth, but you can clear this up. Um, I was always told that the reason, you know, the reason whiskey is color it is, is to differentiate it from said gin. I, I was always told it was actually colored, but I mean, is it naturally colored by the cask or is it actually colored? I mean, do you have to put a bit of color in to differentiate or? Uh, no, it, it's colored. It comes off the still crystal clear, like all distillate. But uh, the barrel, when it goes in the barrel, and literally you can pour whiskey in a barrel and it be in there for five minutes and it, it's already taking on a hue. Um, but the color for true whiskey, uh, American whiskey, no color can be added. So it's all, all comes from the barrel. What's the difference between the, you know, the clear whiskeys and moonshine? Is that what moonshine was? Is the original moonshine? Yeah, so moonshine is you know, illegal. Um, so if you have a DSP, a distilled spirit plant permit, you make moonshine, but it's not moonshine because it's legal, right? Moonshine is made under the shine of the moon. And that's where that comes from. So um, they're the same thing. Sometimes moonshine has a little more sugar at, or has sugar added where my white dog or my fresh, it's only made from the grain, distilled and put in the bottle. But there's sugar shine. There's, you know, some of those moonshines that are out there apple pie and all that stuff have a little sugar to them. The sugar knocks the heat down. So all of those guys who are out there, you know, selling moonshine, they're basically not selling moonshine because it's, it's only moonshine if it's illegal, is what you're saying. Right. So scammers, marketing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Marketing. You know, and white dog is the, is the term for whiskey that's going into the barrel. It's an industry term. White dog, uh, fresh whiskey, new make are all terms that are used for when whiskey right before it goes in the barrel or coming off the still. I've kind of seen moonshine, as you know, you've got these kind of programs, Kate. I mean, I don't actually watch it on television, but I have watched some on the moonshine. And in it, there's this kind of the process of dist distillation was discussed. And am I right when I say that there are kind of three sort of layers of your distillate, what you've distilled? And the top layer is kind of, get rid of that. The middle layer is the bit you want and the bottom layer is, the, you know, kind of, Christ's sake, don't drink it, otherwise you will go blind. I mean, the question I'm, I'm leading up to is, you know, you said you've never been involved in whiskey, you've never, you know, done anything. To get your license, do you need to kind of, do you need to have trained? I mean, do you actually need to kind of, you obviously don't need to know what you're doing, but I mean, do you need a permit? Not legally, Tom, this is America. You could just go blind. <laughs> That's a great question because you don't have any training. Um, you can get a DSP, uh, I mean, if you're a convict, it's a little harder because they, you know, they do a background check and all check and all like that. But there's no training. And and the thing is, is so like I said, you take beer to make whiskey. So everything in whiskey is in beer. You know, there's no nothing comes over. So the thing that makes you blind is methanol. And um, those are the high alcohols, methanol, acetone those kind of things. And those come off the still first, but those are in beer. It's just not concentrated. That's called heads. 
So that's the first, like you talked about. So you put the beer in the still and you bring it up to a boil and or a slow boil and the alcohol comes off first. And as it vaporizes and comes up over the column, over the swan's neck, and then it comes down and gets condensed. The first part of it are, are those high alcohol, ethanol, acetone, things like that. I mean, wh wh at what point do you like, okay, I'm stopping now and this is, I can drink this bit. So everything I read, um, YouTube and all like that talked about heads, heads cuts. And w there's a lot of green apple flavor smell is in heads. So, you know, when you make that cut, it's kind of like a percentage cut, but it, you can taste it. It also drops in proof around the time you want to cut to heads. So it could be coming off the still at 160 proof or so, and all of a sudden it'll be at 158. And you kind of know that you've gotten into the ethanol, the hearts of the cut, you know, and you can get a little heads in there. You can have a little knot of heads in there and lose some ethanol. So you just kind of feel around each run. And then you collect the hearts and the hearts is, are what we drink, the ethanol. And that has some flavor to it, but as you're distilling, more water comes over. So ethanol, pure ethanol doesn't carry any flavor. And so the you need the water to carry flavor. And as you get further in the day, more water's coming over. And that's where we get to tails. And the tail cut is the art of distillation. So every distiller cuts differently in tails. And tails is, again, you know, we started at 160 coming off the still. Throughout the hearts, we're at like 140, 130 proof, round in there. And then you get closer to 100 proof or somewhere in there, 90 or maybe 110, just depends on the distiller. But you've got a lot of water vapor coming over and a lot of flavor. So when you have that clean spirit that was coming over, you know, you got to have a little dirt. Every good thing has a little dirt in it, right? There's the fashion photographer in him coming out right there. <laughs> but you know, yin and yang, you, you've got to have the good and the bad. And so a little too much bad, then it's really ugh, bad because tails have a lot of fuse oils on them. And if you drink some tails, that oil sticks to your tongue and you're just like, oh, please give me something to why. And it won't go away. It takes a few shots to get, get it off your tongue. But, you know, you've collected, say, in the big still that we use now, a we collect about 100 gallons. So at a certain point, you've collected, you know, 90 gallons of ethanol hearts, and you put 10 gallons, 10% of tails in there, and it adds character and flavor to it. Beer makers don't want their fermentation to get too hot because they start creating conagers. And conagers in beer are off flavors, bad flavors. Well, with whiskey, we like conagers because that adds character to our whiskey once it gets condensed into our into our ethanol. And so it, that's a little different. And those conagers are what are tails. So, so what you're basically saying here, Michael, is that you are, in fact, not a whiskey maker, but a bad beer maker. That's what really happened, wasn't it? You went to make beer, you made it badly and decided to make whiskey instead. Brilliant. I mean, I, you know. Yeah. So the funny thing about that is, I went to the brewery and watched, um, it was actually, this was Bristol Brewery seven, eight years ago, and, and I took it over. But I mashed in here with them one day, and um, everything has to be sanitary. Everything, you know, they're, they're putting hot water or boiling water on everything and sanitizer and, you know, every, I'm like, 
I am not that clean. There is no way I could ever make beer with alcohol. You know, I mean, you're making sanitizer, you know, <laughs> so. Sorry, so, sorry, I was going to say, joking apart, have you, have you been able, I mean, given the fact that I imagine, and I don't know, maybe it's not the case, maybe if your sales have become sluggish during the current, we were talking about this earlier with Nigel, saying alcohol is sort of dipping because of the current situation. Have you been called on yet, or have you, a lot of English distilleries have gone into this hand sanitizer. I mean, you know, I mean, this is an aside, but they've literally been called on in the beginning of this pandemic to, you know, get on with it and make some hand sanitizer. And quite a lot of people have kind of, you know, lost their whiskey sales and, the, and have, have actually made it. Have, have you done that or are you just kind of like, I don't know what's happening, you know, is it not relevant? It was relevant. You know, back in March, we looked at, you know, people started making hand sanitizer and we were making whiskey and, and I calculated it out. And for us to make hand sanitizer, it just was going to be so expensive. And, and we weren't built, like I say, I don't make vodka. So sanitizer, the best way to do it is by GNS, uh, grain neutral spirits, or Everclear in America. And, you know, mix a little glycerin with it and you can make hand sanitizer. Well, people, a lot of distilleries use GNS for their process. And so they had, you know, 250 gallon totes of GNS where they could turn and make hand sanitizer really quickly. We make it from scratch. Everything we make is from scratch. And so the cost would have just been astronomical. And so we just were like, okay, we're just going to make whiskey and stick to that. And if you'd been making vodka, it would have been a whole different story. But whiskey, it didn't, it didn't, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the issue. Exactly. What about you? On a lot of your bottles, I see it says here, uh, finished with aspen wood staves. What what are they? So aspen is a wood here in Colorado or in the Rocky Mountains. Aspen trees. Um, they're the golden leaves in the fall. Really beautiful white bark. Um, so we take pieces of aspen about this long, and we toast them on a Weber grill in the back, and then we open the the barrel, pop the bung on the barrel, and put a couple of those in there. And they sit for about three weeks. And that's how we finish it. And where that came from was a little bit of marketing because I make Colorado whiskey. I wanted Aspen on the label. But when I tested it, the Aspen shifted caramel notes to maple and gave a little more spice and smokiness to the whiskey. So I'm like, that's even better. How much do you credit Weber Grills? Every time I'm on a podcast, I talk about them. <laughs> I'm going to say, someone is talking about marketing. You had a very romantic story until all of a sudden it was like, and then I put it on the Weber grill and I, I rotate it and I brown it on the Weber grill. And I'm like, no, 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 yeah. no, you don't, Michael. You don't. You have a roaring fire out there. And, you know, you have some extraordinary story of how you, you know, they take hours and days of slow smoking. <laughs> Can I ask you something? Um, we know the story of how you got to Colorado. Well, I just heard the story of how you got to Colorado. And after 9-11, now, I, I was out in Colorado once in a place called Loveland and then going up to Telluride. And up, when we were up in Telluride, I couldn't help. There was a, uh, my, I was with my brother. We were on a little road trip. And he, he took a picture of the Coors Mountain up there, you know, and, and that, that picture that you see on the Coors beer thing. We were just looking over and we recognized it. Suddenly we were like, that's the Coors Mountain, you know. So it leads me to my question, is Colorado famous for brewing, I mean, I'm sorry, as an as, as someone from the UK, I have no idea the answer to the question. But I mean, are you? Is it somewhere? Are you, have you got a lot of kindred spirits around you? I'm talking about brewing and distilling. I mean, is that is, there a, is this is it a sort of hub, or are you are you quite unique in Colorado? 
I'm not unique in Colorado per se. Colorado has been a brewing state for a long time with the craft, uh, you know, craft brewing started 30 years ago. I mean, even a little earlier than that in, in California, but Colorado was quick to adapt. And then uh, for distilling, Colorado was really quick to adapt the laws to make it where we could have DSPs in Colorado. And also they allow us to self-distribute in Colorado, which is amazing and sell out of the tasting room and sell as many bottles as we would like out of the tasting room. So where other states have a lot of laws that don't allow those things, or you can only buy two bottles of a year out of the tasting room, things like that. Colorado has been very favorable to brewing and, and distilling. But um, so, yeah, so a lot of brewers in Colorado shifted from brewing beer to distilling. We have over a hundred distilleries in Colorado. Um, we're either number two or three in the in the states of in distillation. That's changing. You know, every state's more and more uh, distilleries are being built almost every day. It's amazing. So, so that's a great reason to go to Colorado with Bill, right? If you want to go make whiskey, it sounds like you know the lax laws, and it's the same, I guess, with medical marijuana, or actually just weed. I mean, they, that's, it's all legal in Colorado, isn't it? But it's always that sort of question, does that affect? So when you were talking earlier about, you know, the big bit of what you're doing, you know, the crucial bit, I suppose, you're sitting on $4 million worth of, of whiskey right now at cost, right? Not even retail. So that's, you know, you're sitting on a lot of, like, a lot of investment. Do the different state laws in, America, in, in, in the United States affect your sales, your marketing strategy? I mean, do you have to literally, can you just do a broad, broad spectrum marketing strategy or or do you have to go state by state are the laws as such that you have to really know your law you know your bylaws in these states is it prohibitive to, to commerce as it were yeah so you go state by state and and different states are you know have different distribution um laws and you know america is a three-tier system but texas is a four-tier so to explain that is if you're a manufacturer in and you want to sell in Texas, either making it in Texas or in Colorado, but you want to sell it in Texas, you um, have to find a distributor. You sell it to the distributor. The distributor sells it to a liquor store. And then bar and restaurants have to buy from the liquor store. They can't buy from the distributor. So that's four tiers, which is crazy. It's really hard. You know, it was set up for people not to have control, but it's kind of over the years, it's made it where other people have control and it makes it really hard. And so like, I think Georgia early on, and I think they've changed their law, but if you were making it in Georgia, you had to find a distributor and sell it to the distributor. And the distributors are used to margin, small margins, but high volume because big guys, Jack Daniels, Jim Beam, vodka, you know, whoever can make a ton of it and sell, you know, and so here you are a craft maker and you, you're making, you know, a pallet a year, maybe, maybe a couple of pallets a year. And they don't care about you. They, you know, they might take you on, they might've taken you on because it was trendy or whatever, but it was really hard to get a distributor. And that's where Colorado was amazing because literally in those, in that 300 square foot space, making th 60 gallons a month, I could load up the whiskey in my truck, go down to the liquor store 
I have a license. I mean, I had to pay for a license and stuff for the state, but go to the liquor store and sell them a bottle or a six pack or whatever. And anywhere in the state. And so that was really great for me. And I've built a distribution company with 291. Um, we self-distribute. I've had many distributors want my whiskey in the state of Colorado. And it's like, if you can promise me you're going to sell as much as I'm selling, I'm fine with that. But right now, Colorado is my home state. It's my cash cow of being able to sell how much whiskey we're selling. It helps fund what I'm doing you know, and growing. And so if I gave that up and trusted a distributor, it would be really hard. I mean, that's kind of nuts in one way. You know, the great, you know, if you look at the United States and the kind of, you know, the, your freedom of commerce and, you know, everything's for sale and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, it's, and bear in mind, I'm talking from, you know, from the UK, Colorado is probably three times the size of the UK anyway. But I mean, it, for me, it, it, it like if, you, if I started a little distillery or a brewery, I mean, I could go anywhere within the United Kingdom. And until quite recently, I could have gone anywhere to 28 different countries, you know, in Europe. But the thing is, you can, you know, you can go to free houses, you can go to off licenses, you can sell wherever you want. I mean, is, is, is this law, because it's there's a difference between state law and federal laws, I mean, is, is the overall law on, on this kind of thing, are, are they going to change anytime soon? Or, or do, you, do you think that, I mean, are you, are you kind of lobbying for change? Or do you think everything's going to stay in these rather archaic sort of crazy, crazy laws? Yeah, no, they're changing um, slowly, but they're changing. Uh, what's going to, what I would like to change faster, and I think everybody that uh, in the wine, beer, and, and liquor industry would like as craft people I'm not sure the big guys or the distribution companies want this, but direct to consumer. So right now you can go on my website and buy my whiskey, right? But it's not shipped through me. Uh, we've sold it to a distributor in different states, and then they have a third party that takes the order and ships the whiskey. What we would love is right, to be able to ship right out of our tasting room, like wineries did for a long time, and then it changed a little bit, and they're trying to change it back. But where you know, you guys walk in, you you drink my whiskey. You're you know live in. I'm trying to think of a state, Kansas. We're not in Kansas right now. So you get home and you're like, I want more of that whiskey. If you logged on and we could sell it direct out of the tasting room, our margins that much better you know, it allows us to really grow and, and have a nice business um, without just, you know, shipping through a distributor and then through another person and then through another person to get to your door. Mm. So it's called DTC, direct to consumer. And that, that's what looks like it's going to change faster than anything. And that, you know, that's coming along with Amazon. And there are a lot of people that want to be able to ship whiskey throughout the U.S. And, I was going to say, I mean, you know, look at something like Amazon. I buy champagne, I buy Bollinger's through Amazon because I can't find it cheaper anywhere. I can't find it cheaper in a supermarket here, you know, let alone a, a booze shop. Which, you know, so because it's, I suppose it's doing the volume, right? But I mean, for small distillers, when you're starting out as a small distiller, this is it's quite prohibitive. This kind of distributors won't take you unless you've got big volume. But how do you get big volume if you're Literally, you've got to make it big in Colorado in order to start distributing elsewhere. I mean, that's, is that kind of what you're saying? I mean, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Tell us, how did you come across or come about the name 291? So 291 was the very first photo gallery ever in the world, uh, Alfred Stieglitz. 
Gallery 291, 291 Fifth Avenue. Was around in 1907 or so till 12, 15, something like that. Before that, photographs were shown in salons with paintings and Stieglitz was like, I'm going to open a gallery and only show photographs. And it was gallery 291. When I went to Savannah College of Art and Design for photography, freshman year, when I learned about this gallery, my dorm room was 291. And I still have the key to this day. And the process of distillation remind me of the dark rooms. So I, um, I thought 291 would be a good name. And building the still out of photogravure plates and all like that. Do you think the person who said currently it's to some someone in 291 who's going to listen to this and say, any minute now? <laughs> well, they tore, they tore the dorm down. Okay, we were all right. Uh, Sorry. I was there a year ago and they tore it down. I was like, oh, I would have loved to have the door off that. They had to tear it down because they couldn't find the key. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I do have a question, though, about your bottles and everything. I mean, I love the whole process. I know that you're really into the whole marketing process. Uh, did the still made of the, of the copper uh, plates, did that affect the original flavor of what you were doing? Did it have any part in that process? And did you, how was it to, to replicate that when you started to go bigger? Right. So or, or did that not really have anything to do with it? It was just more romantic idea. A little bit of both. The still definitely has feels with the flavor. Any still, uh, you change the shape and, and the flavor changes. I've learned that. And, and so the one thing, the column of the still on that still is a photogravure. And I decided to reverse the etching onto the inside of it to add more surface area. As the distillate went up the column, it would catch on the more surface area and clean the whiskey more and make it better. If it didn't help, it was good for the story. So it's actually an image of the Chrysler building is in the middle of that still, and you can look down it and see the image, the reversed etched image in the still. Amazing. Kind of crazy. I'm, yeah. I'm surprised you didn't do one with like an Empire State building and the uh, sort of a very, you know, the Twin Towers and various other things. So you could have flavored your whiskeys completely differently by the inside picture that's on the distillation. <laughs> I have to make more of those stills um, because I still use that still with my big uh, 300 gallon one as its thump keg. So I have to, I've got at least two, if not four more production lines I'm building over the next year and a half. And um, so I will build three more small stills and, and I'm gonna use different images for that. So looking at these bottles here, and, and they, 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 they sort of remind me of what you would see in a Western movie, it literally like when someone walks in and they pop down the bottle in front of the drinker and you know pull the cork out, love that sound. <laughs> and, and it's sort of like, I want a whiskey and they put the whole bottle in front of you and the guy sits there and you know, drinks out of it. What was the design idea and the, the weighted bottom? Is this something that you created, you designed from the ground, or was it something you found and then replicated? The bottle, I started with another bottle that was very similar. It's a round bottle. A lot of whiskeys used the bottle that I started with, and it was fine. The cork, I definitely, I designed the cork. I had it made. The cage that's on it is really a champagne cage. But I wanted that. I was making high-proof whiskey. I wanted to wire that high-proof whiskey in, and that's where that cage came from. 
I thought it was a Western movie that inspired me when I was a really young kid. I learned that it was Little House on the Prairie, and it was A Long Hard Day or something was the name of the episode, and they were transporting nitroglycerin in a wagon, and they had wired the nitroglycerin in so it wouldn't bounce or jolt. And so I'm like, high-proof whiskey, I got it wired in. That's where that came from. I must have missed that Little House on the Prairie episode when they were <laughs> became sort of, um, protesters with their nitroglycerin <laughs> wired in. That was a whole other episode. <laughs> I'll, I'll find it and email it to you. Um, but the bottle um, that I have now is, it's less masculine than the original. And I really like that um, because my whiskey is very masculine. It's big, bold, um, like I said, big, bold, and beautiful, like the state of Colorado. And I wanted something that was a little more refined. You know, one of my sayings is uh, rugged, refined, rebellious. And so I wanted a, a little bit more refined bottle. And so a glass company came to me and showed me this bottle. And they said, you know, you can use it. And I, I'm like, great, will you sell me a pallet? And they're like, no, we'll sell you a, a container. And I'm like, how many bottles are in a container? And they're like, you know, and this was seven years ago or so. And um, they're like 30,000 bottles. And I'm like, oh my God, I won't go through 30,000 bottles for another four years. And so um, I had to wait and I did. And then we got to a point where we were buying about 30,000 bottles a year. And so we signed a contract and got the bottle. And I really liked my bottle. It's Sam Elliott drinks my whiskey on the ranch, um, the Netflix show, The Ranch. And um, you can tell, you can't always see the label, but you can tell by the shape of the bottle. And then um, season three, episode three of Ozarks, Laura Lenny and her brother character drink my whiskey at their dining room table. And they never show the label, but you can tell it's 291 because of the bottle shape. And I really love that because it really stands out that way. So... Well, congratulations on all your success. Well, tell us about your awards. When you, you a lot of these bottles are uh, stickered with all kinds of awards and what have you. Was that a big turning point for you as far as obviously recognition and what have you? But did it really make a difference as far as people actually going, okay, I'm going to take this guy seriously and I'm going to try his whiskey? And I've got to say, I've been really enjoying the whiskey. It is not your standard whiskey. It, it is gorgeous, beautiful. I mean, it has. I like to almost think it has a sort of ch the chocolatey background to it. I don't know what it is or how, where that comes from, but the richness of it, it's intense. And it's almost like a dessert. Thank you. So um, the awards, Jim Murray's Whiskey Bible, the first one, I got barrel number two of my rye whiskey. I got 94 points from him. That's liquid gold. His highest score is 97 and a half points. I got that award October of 2012. I started this my first uh, run was September 11th, 2011. So right off the bat, and he, you ship him whiskey um, for free. He, he tastes it. He'll tell you what he thinks of it. So if you don't think it's good, if you ship it to him and he hates it, he will tell you, which is great. But he was, he's very honest and it doesn't cost you anything. And you can even send him like a 200 milliliter little bottle of it where the, the other um, award competitions asked for like two to four bottles and it was like $350 or whatever uh, entry. And I was like, I can't afford that. One, I can't afford it because I'm making so little whiskey. Two, I don't have the cash. So it took me a little while to get there. 
And so 2016 was the first time I entered a big competition and it was uh, World Whiskey Awards of Whiskey Magazine. And I got America's Best Rye Whiskey No Age Statement in 2016, first time presented with them. 2017, I didn't win anything with them. I think I got third or fourth with my rye and then bourbon was somewhere in there a little lower. In 2018, I won World's Best Rye Whiskey with Whiskey Magazine. Then we've won San Francisco, New York, Denver, a lot of golds, double golds, a lot of awards. And and then I have one called Bad Guy, 291 Bad Guy, which is a four grain weeded bourbon. That was my second liquid gold with Jim Murray, two years into distilling in that 300 square foot space. And that's won many awards. The stickers are funny. Originally, people would get the bottles and they're like, oh, all these stickers. Eh. And then they'd taste the whiskey and they're like, okay, it holds up. And that's been, it's been great because there used to be shelf talkers in liquor stores and, and people gotten further away from that. So I started just putting the stickers on the bottles and, and the stickers kind of seem like they're the same, but they, they rotate every time we, you know, one falls off, we put another one up or more important or whatever, different, different things like that. Um, but we've won made amazing awards throughout the industry from world whiskey awards to sip sip awards are consumer based uh, judges. So people that drink whiskey, you know, they go out and buy it. They're judging the whiskey. We've won um, gold plat or platinum. Both the rye and the bourbon have run, won platinum with them a couple of years. Uh, this past year, we won consumer's choice with rye and bourbon. And we won last year an innovation award with the bourbon with SIP. So it, it's kind of across the board. And yes, it does help sell the whiskey in the store. It's been very good in that way. So, so are we going to see a, a distillery 291 Olsen twin collaboration anytime soon? <laughs> you know, I don't think so. I lost contact with them a while ago. I shot, you know, I shot them. There was a question you sent me in the email from Marcus and Marcus and I went and shot uh, the wedding of their manager in Cabo. And there was so much tequila on that. That was way before I was making whiskey. And, and then I shot for their row, the row and all like that. But I haven't talked to them in quite a few years. So, you know, if, if they reached out, sure, I would love that. They're, they're amazing women, um, hardworking super intelligent and and a lot of fun to be around. Did Nigel ever shoot them? The Olsen twins. No, I have my own twins. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) He went all quiet just then. I was like, this is very unusual for Nigel to go so quiet. I was like, oh, maybe he hasn't had the... Oh, yeah, okay, I can see this. There's a photographer hierarchy thing going on here. That's why he's been being quiet. Anyways, (laughs) that would have been my question. You forced the question. I wasn't actually going to ask it. It's all good. You see, unlike Michael, who lost touch with his twins and um you know had to go off and make whiskey i actually married mine but anyway uh, we're gonna we're gonna go straight on we've we got one last thing last orders michael have you got time for some last orders sure but i want one uh i shot your twins way before you ever met them oh i'm not sure that's true I, I have to lie. you you can ask that that is the truth <laughs> what was it? Oh, i shot um a, a test. I shot him in my apartment for a test. Oh, in his apartment too. <laughs> it's still not true. Yeah, I was married. Whatever. 
It's not true at all. This is the reason why you had to go hide in Colorado. <laughs> ask, ask your wife. <laughs> Might deny it. What's, the, what's rapid fire? What are we doing? Right, we're going to do some, we got, with some rapid fire questions. First of all, whose twins were better? No, that's not a question. But um, <laughs> you've got one second to answer, Michael. Um, okay, here we go. Bourbon, rye, wheat, or corn? Rye. What floats your boat and what gets your goat? <laughs> what floats my boat? Um, making my own whiskey gets my goat. Oh, slow drivers. Slow drivers. There you go. And there goes the ex-wife right there. Um, <laughs> what are your favorite lyrics of all time? Telegraph Road by Dire Straits. Oh, okay. And yeah. that whole song is just amazing. There you go. Die little Dire Straits moment. I haven't heard their name in a very long time. You're dating yourself, Michael. <laughs> in the movie of your life, who would you have play you? Uh, if you were a little more white-headed and, you know, longer hair, maybe you, Nigel. Um, to say i don't know I, I i'm not available old boy you're gonna find someone you know a little bit I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you know sam elliott he's a dear friend i've known sam for 30 years and uh yeah i mean i would love for him to play me that would be amazing oh there you go and final shaken or stirred which are you sir i love that question stirred i love a black manhattan made with my 291 barrel proof colorado whiskey um so you stir that a whiskerita you shake because it has lime or has juice in it. If you're talking martinis, if you have bad vermouth that nobody's put in the cooler, then you need to shake it, put a little drip in and shake it. If you have good vermouth and gin, it's equal parts and you stir it. There you go. A man who knows his shaking and his stirring. It sounds like he's a bit of both. We are fond of both over here ourselves. Michael, thank you so much. It's been an education, apart from anything else. Um, I've absolutely enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed the, the, your distillery 291. You have so many, you have six different whiskeys in front of me. Everybody out there, go and try one. There's gonna be one for you, if not an entire collection for you. Really, really delicious. Wonderful story about you know, obviously moving from being a fashion photographer to, to getting into making your own whiskey. I think that it just goes to show that you can live the dream and you're doing it. Well done. Congratulations. And thank you so, so much. And we, we look forward to following your journey and, and seeing the successes of 291. And we, you know, forget about the Olsen twins. It's really the 291 shaken and stirred that we need to see. Thank you very much, Nigel and Tom. I really enjoyed it. Nigel, it's great catching up with you. It's been way too long and I'm, I'm, Super excited you got to taste my whiskey. Tom, you can find it in the UK. Uh, Maverick Drinks uh, has some there that they sell online a little bit. I'm yeah, guess. Maverick. I'm lucky enough, Tom, I get sent it, but you can find yours. Well, if I get an address, I can get it to Tom. That's easy. Love to try it. I haven't tried it. We'll have a drink off. We'll have an episode where we'll do a drink off taste test. I love it. There you go. I love that. Enjoy yourself. Here's to a shaken and stirred week, and we'll see you next week. Cheers, Michael. Thank you. Cheers. See you guys. Thank you very much for listening. That is Shaken and Stirred. We will be back next week with another podcast and another fantastic guest. And uh, stay safe. See ya.